So if you're a guest today, we uh, are actually, uh, basically what we do is we pick a book of the Bible, we start walking through it, so that's where we find ourselves today, and before I go any further, let's pray. Father, we just want you to be present as you always are, and to be aware of you in new ways this morning. We want you to speak to us and uh, challenge us this morning. Show us things that need your healing touch. And as we leave this place, uh, may we know that we are in the process of being restored. That God, we're a piece of work and you're working on us. May we be focused without distraction as you speak into our souls. May we hear your voice. And may this passage be clear. And may we see our story in this story. We need to find healing and hope. And we need to be ambassadors of that healing and hope to the world around us. So make us aware that you are with us as you always are and empower us and encourage us as we leave in just a few moments. Amen. Open your iPad, your Bible, your iPhones, your eyelids. I don't really care. Just open something to Matthew chapter 10. And a few weeks ago, um, we looked at Jesus sending out the 12, and Jordan Michalski gave us a great analysis of the 12 disciples that were being sent out on their very first missionary journey. Now, there's a little something interesting in the first five verses, and we see that these disciples, as they were first called uh, in verse 1, But in verse 2, they're now listed as apostles. So let me just bring a little bit of clarity here first. Uh, A disciple's a learner. He's one who follows a teacher. A disciple's one who learns that wisdom. And so Jesus had many disciples. He had a lot of disciples around him. Some of them were just hangers-on. They were looking to get something. But others were actually sold out to the message that he was sharing. And so from that large group of followers, Jesus handpicked a smaller group. 12, 12 men, he calls them disciples, come follow me, but now he changes it and he calls them apostles, which is interesting. Apostles. The word there, apostle, comes from the Greek word uh, apostolo, which means to send forth with a commission. So these 12 were sent forth with a commission. And that word is used by the Greeks to, for the personal representative of the king, ambassadors who, who functioned with the king's authority. They had authority. They went forward. So that word apostle also appears later on in scripture, but it's interesting because then it's going to take on a very different meaning. Well, not a very different meaning, a, very, a different meaning per se, especially when it comes to apostles in the early church and the de- definition. But here we have the first mention of the word. So, What we have in this passage is that Jesus gathers 12 specific devotees. He commissions them. He gives them all the authority they need. He gives them a message, and he tells them, go represent me. Get the word out. Get moving. Make it happen. Now, Jordan at the end of, uh, ended at verse 5 when he was speaking on this, so I have the honor to uh, bring to light and examine what Jesus was saying, not only to the 12, but now to the rest of the world. 
As we look at Matthew chapter 10, Jesus called his disciples. He called Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and according to Mark 6, they were all in pairs. And Jesus sends them out in pairs, and he sends them out with the authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And this chapter actually has been broken down by many theologians into very two specific parts. The verses 1 to 5 relate to the sending out of the twelve these new apostles. However, Matthew 10 to 16 are instructions for a much later time. We'll get to that next week. Today, I just want to focus on the first part. So Jesus gives the 12 the following instruction. I love this. You got to imagine, you got 12 guys sitting in front of you and you're about to send them out. And this is what he says. Don't go to the Gentiles or enter any uh, town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, I want you to proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. So heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, because freely you have received, so freely give. Don't get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey, no extra shirt, sandals, or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. So whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person and stay in their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town, shake the dust off your feet, and truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. That's the instructions he gives them. So when we read this, we see that Jesus gives some very clear travel instructions for the boys. First, he tells them where to go. Then he tells them what to do, followed by how to do it and with whom to do the mission. And finally, how to handle rejection. And so he empowers these followers with power. They became his official representatives. And then he says, here's the agenda. The first thing, boys, here's where you're not to go followed by their focus, that what their focus must be. So Jesus is very clear in the, that he limits his emphasis to specifically the Jewish nation. Jesus wanted them to have, the Jews to have every chance to respond first to his message. Why? Well, there's a reason for everything. And because this is the early stage of Jesus' ministry, it's quite possible uh, that if he included the Samaritans and the Gentiles in this particular outreach mission, that it would have negatively affected his ability to reach the Jews. There's a whole lot of other uh, reasons why. But he just gives them a target. And he says, look, at focus on the, tw- the lost sheep of Israel. And that, that term sheep referred to God's people. That term lost implied that they were spiritually helpless and they were vulnerable, especially because there was no shepherd. They were, they were just lost people. And so the 12 had a very specific mission to accomplish. Reach the Jewish people first. It's very simple and very clear. And then the next thing was answering you know, what they were supposed to do. He wanted the boys to preach and to heal. It was very simple. Their message was the kingdom have of heaven has come near. That was Jesus' message way back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That was what they were supposed to preach. 
And so to repent means to turn around, to have a change of mind. And the idea in the New Testament is, is a change of mind and actions. And if I'm going in one direction, and when I repent, I change 180, and I go in the other direction. And that was their message, change. Jesus also tells us in Matthew 4 that the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. Because when you think about it, heaven's something that we all desire. We, I don't think we've met a person who's actually looking forward to going to hell. You know, you hear people say, that, I'll be in hell with all my friends. You know, we don't look forward to that. I think when we think of the concept of the afterlife, we all want to be in a place of bliss, in a place of happiness, in a place of uh, peace. So what's the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about? He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, it's close. And again, this is Matthew chapter 4. It's nearby. There's, there's a great word picture behind that uh, original world when, uh, word when he says at hand. It's the idea of a bended arm, drawing you near, squeezing you to bring us near. So God, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, God really wants to be close to you and me, pulling us in. So where's the kingdom of heaven? Is it over here? Is it over there? Or is it out there somewhere in outer space? Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, he says, the kingdom of God does not come uh, with your careful observation, nor will people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is within you. That's to say that the kingdom of God begins to work in people's hearts. It, 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 it is to produce not new things, but new people. It's not a revolution in material things that we're looking for or a political thing. It's a revolution of the hearts of people. You think of this revolutionary concept that the kingdom of God can be found through your heart. And so when we're out and about and we're doing our shopping and we're doing our working, the kingdom of God is as close as you are to people. So when Jesus or the disciples are going around and they're saying, repent, that the kingdom of God is near, it's as near as the person standing there. They are the messengers. They are the proclaimers. They are inviting people to encounter God. And Jesus calls all of us to repent. He calls all of us to turn around. You know, it's interesting. It's Comic-Con weekend. I don't know if you noticed that. It's also Halloween weekend. I'm not sure if you've been aware of that either. You know, it was already going in June in Costco, but anyway. You know, you can't help but see people walking around downtown in their costumes. Whether it's Comic-Con or Halloween, I don't even know. Even today, we had a little lion in the nursery, so protect your young ones. Um, Spider-Man was seen walking downtown. Like, it's all over the place. And, and again, of course, I always get to see the people in the Star Wars get up, Right? And again, when you see that, you realize, when you see Comic-Con and you see all these people dressed up, what you see is how much story impacts our culture. It really does, to the point where we dress up like our favorite characters. And this is more than just a Halloween thing. It's, it's, I don't get it. I'm sorry. I just, I, 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 I can't dress up as a Call of Duty soldier. I just, I just don't get it, but... You know, again, I saw a bunch of people dressed up as Star Wars yesterday, and I was reminded by Josh Hayes. He wrote this. He said, most great stories, regardless of their creator's intentions, mimic the creator's story and will, on some level, fit the temple of creation 
template of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Drama, of course, predicts, predicates on conflict and resolution. And God was the first to think up such a concept, good versus evil, the hero against the villain, the underdog winning against the seemingly invincible, the light overcoming darkness. There's a reason these dynamics are rep repeated and yet never get old or out of style. They are strangely familiar because they belong to the original story, God's story, our story. Later on, he goes on, he says, this is how art works. It reflects and interprets life. We love stories because at some level, we as human beings realize that we are a part of one. Because we bear God's image, we have a sense of purpose, and we believe history is going somewhere, and that life matters. Remember a while back, I talked about the movie The Force Awakens, right? All the Trekkie, fan, uh, the Trekkie fans, all the Star Wars fans went nuts. Trekkie, my eyes were still going, well, you've got to talk about next generation. But the fact that when you watch this movie, it, it really shows the power of redemption. It's not just a story of good versus evil. It, it's possible that people can change sides. We're obviously, in this movie, we're drawn to the one character who was raised from birth as a stormtrooper. He's just a number. That's all he is. He looks like a machine. He has no emotions. He has no ex expressions. He obeys. But he does have a conscience, which is interesting. And the movie portrays that. And he, he can choose. And he does. And he changes sides in the movie. And he does the right thing. And then what he does is he takes off his old uniform. And then he wears the jacket of the one who saved him, which is interesting, right? And then he, what does he do? He joins. So he repents. He turns around. He goes the other way. He joins the rebellion. He rejects the dark side. He comes into the light. When he comes into the light, what happens? He is welcomed. He's accepted. He receives a new name, Finn. And Finn is loved. He's redeemed. He becomes this real person. And that beautifully describes how we become followers of Jesus Christ. This redemption or call to change sides, to repent, while it's uncommon amongst most, it's offered to everybody by Jesus. Connie and Neil said, in each life resides the possibility of overcoming evil with good, and that will only be realized by those who answer the call. So there's this longing that, that draws us to respond to Jesus' call, to submit to his authority. And when we do, we are what we, Scripture says we're born again into his family. We're born again into his kingdom. We're born of God. We become children of God. And this is not something that happens naturally. It's supernatural. It's a miracle. And only then can we reach our full potential and realize our destiny and our purpose of what God has laid out before us. And so Jesus' call is to repent. It's a wake-up call for everybody to, to see, to hear, to wake up, and to walk. It wakes up us up to the awesome possibilities of a life lived in a way that only Jesus can offer. They wake us up to the daily miracle of the divine presence among us so that we don't miss the many splendid things of beauty, of truth, of goodness that really surrounds us because this world is such a negative place. We get woken up, we get changed up, we get charged up, and the 12 apostles are given a wake-up call. Go wake up the children of Israel. Go say this message. And they went out and they ministered just as Jesus ministered. They had physical miracles, were a way of confirming Jesus' new message. His power, his authority is flowing through them. The signs confirmed this message that Jesus had. And now I need to say this. The Greek manuscripts contain several variations of the various phrases. They went out to raise the dead. 
This may be because the biblical records are actually, uh, it's, it's interesting in terms of the interpretation because biblical records are lacking that the 12 apostles actually raised the dead. We don't see that. It's quite, not that they didn't do it. We just don't have a biblical record. So it's quite possible that that term is more of a metaphor of raising the spiritual dead. All right, so because the lost sheep were spiritually dead, maybe that's what the reference was. And I'm just throwing that out there for discussion and, and argument's sake. So the fact is Jesus is encouraging believers to trust in God while doing kingdom work in his power, under his provisions. I'll take care of you, don't worry about it. And with his purposes to be accomplished. This is my goal, reach these people. And these verses are not universal principles per se. These are guidelines for a particular missions trip. Basically, Jesus is looking at these guys and he's saying, hey, don't worry about it. I'm going to look after you. I got your back. These are your working orders. Go make it happen. The disciples weren't supposed to carry anything with them that they might need. They, they were supposed to trust God for daily provision. And the t- key to this whole text is that believers, you and I, are to trust God for his provisions, that we're supposed to rely on God for his resources, which desired, that desired the blessings of their, uh, sorry, his resources. I lost my spot. Thinking. Brain fart. They were supposed to trust God for everything to provide. And that, interesting, that provision comes through other people. So they're going out into the world. They're going out to minister to Jewish people. God's going to provide. And who's he going to use to provide for? Other people. So when they came to a village, they were to seek out a godly home, that which desired the, the blessing of their pe- presence, which would be a shalom blessing, a greeting, a peace, a traditional Jewish blessing. That's what they would do. And they were not to move again. They weren't supposed to go from house to house. They were supposed to stay in a place. Possibly that godly home or that place that they would have landed would be probably one of the first people that would respond to their preaching. And they would guide and disciple and work with those people to reach the other areas around them. But Jesus continues the outline of what they're to do if they're rejected, which is really interesting. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Again, that's a Jewish symbol of rejection. I don't want anything to do with you, right? Tell you the tr- uh, truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Another interesting statement is that Jesus is already suggesting, as we read this, that the proclamation of the kingdom, the, the preaching will be met with opposition. You take a look at this book that we're studying, and we see that this same book, which reveals God's matchless love, Love for humanity also reveals God's wrath and judgment. So there's a desperation in the message that's out there. Why? Because the desperation is that there is eternal consequences. Either we're going to accept or we're going to reject. And there's consequences for it. It's clear in Scripture. Now allow me to make a switch on how this passage can apply to us today. Because the context of the passage is clearly referencing the 12, their traveling instructions for their missionary journey. But what is the takeaway for us this morning? You know, I could talk about how we as believers, if you're a believer here this morning, that we have to be witnesses like the 12 here in this passage. But I sat and I, I just struggled through this whole application part. And, and this is what I've come down to. I think that there's more for us to take away with this morning. James McDonald said this. He says, the church of Jesus Christ is not like a target store. 
It's not like you go, get what you came for, and then head home again. The church isn't just about you getting what you need. It's about you participating in what everybody needs. It's a community of families and people all working together so that the church can be all God wants it to be. And I think one of the hapless beliefs the church has operated under many years is that the Christian life is just a matter of getting saved, and that's the end of it until we get to heaven. You know, as long as I got my ticket punched, I'm okay, I'm on the train. And according to some, having our sins forgiven is simply all that the Christian life is all about. Jesus and his followers come preaching the kingdom of God. He talks about what it meant to know God, to be a part of the kingdom that was not part of this world. He spoke of a transformation of heart and character that enables us to be a part of what God is doing and wants to do in this world. Again, it it is working together so that the church can be all God wants it to be. So it got me thinking, man, what does God want us as soul sanctuary to be? Acts 2.42 It says the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Everybody was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And again, remember, this is post-resurrection. All the believers were together. They they had everything in common. They sold their property possessions and they gave to anyone in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what does God want us to do? That's the question. What does God, what does Jesus want us to do? I came down with a simple answer. It's preach and teach the word. That's our calling as believers. We're to preach and teach the word and we're to guide people in life transformation with Jesus Christ. Really, why? Because Jesus came to give us life and he came to give us life more abundantly. So so now he says, do as I do. So how do we do that? And I think there's numerous ways in which that we do this as a community. Of course we do it on a Sunday morning, right? Then we have all these different programs that, uh, that help people from counseling and divorce care and kids ministry, youth ministry, soul sisterhood, guys ministry, uh, celebrate recovery, you name it. It just keeps, the sunroom, all these different things keep going on. And it's just one way that we are activating the mission of the church. There was a little old lady, she was amazed at how the young nice man next door would help her every day. Every day he would gather her her things from her car, or help her in the yard. He'd cut her grass, rake her leaves, do whatever he needed to do. And finally, the little old lady looked at the young man and said, son, how did you become such a fine young man? Man, the little guy, the teenager looks at the lady and says, well, when I was a boy, I had a drug problem. The old lady was shocked. She couldn't believe. She's looking at this kid going, I can't believe what's going on. I can't believe that, she said. The young man replied, it's true. My parents drug me to church Sunday morning. They drug me to church Sunday night. They drug me to church on Wednesday. There are many good reasons to make church a regular part of our lives. And in a culture that's actually going away from it, where maybe we put, a, put some half-baked emphasis. That almost slipped out. There needs to be three important aspects. There are three important aspects that we have to realize as a community. 
and that we all have needs. We all have spiritual needs. We all have physical needs. We all have social needs. And when we read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, we see that God has placed within each of us these basic needs that uh, are to be met when we make Jesus and his church a priority in our lives. Because what we do as believers is very important. We all have spiritual needs, people. You know it, I know it, we do. It's a a no-brainer. And if we want to understand the importance of, um, of why we even gather together as a church community, the best place then for us is to look as the ones who started it all. We need to go back to that very first church in Jerusalem. The first thing we learn about them is that all believers devoted themselves. That verb, that verb devoted is a common one that, that has this idea of the steadfast, single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. They were holding on. It was meaning that they continued in faithful adherence to this newly formed community. They were sold out to the community. And the early church was completely sold out to these principles. This wasn't a pastime. It wasn't a hobby or, or something that they did when they had nothing better to do. Rather, it was something that was a priority in their life, gathering together. Why? Because they had spiritual needs. And so they, what did they devote themselves to do? Luke tells us that all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You've got to look at the scriptures. Jesus spent so much time teaching the crowds and his inner followers, those guys. It's not surprising that teaching has an, had an important place in the early church, just like it should today. And the early church had a persistent desire for instruction. They wanted to know more. It wasn't enough for them to merely have their foot in the door just to be a part of community. They had a continual uh, insatiable hunger to learn more about their faith. They knew what we often forget, that the rule and standard of faith begins and ends with the word of God. We don't read our Bible. We don't know our Bible. We're not prone to ask what it really means. What we're prone to say is this is what I think it means. And that's dangerous. That's spiritually dangerous. The next thing that Luke tells us is that they were devoted to fellowship. The word koinonia is used. And koinonia was, was experienced in the process of teaching, interestingly enough. It, it involved close mutual relations and carried with it this idea of partnership. We're in it together. This is what, we use the word fellowship. They use the word koinonia. The New Testament uses that term 19 times, which suggests that the church used this word for a unique sharing that Christians have with God and each other. It was more than just getting together. It was more than just having coffee and and donuts. It was a partnership in the purposes of the church and a sharing in its message and work. In other words, we're in it together. This is what koinonia, this is what fellowship is about. We're in this together. Another thing they were devoted to was sharing in the meals. It says also the Lord's Supper. But if you knew, uh, some of you know I'd get to eating eventually, but I I love food. But this phrase literally means the breaking of bread. Again, that was a uh, Jewish technical expression for the custom of pronouncing the blessing and the breaking and the distributing of bread at the beginning of the meal. So when we read the breaking of bread, it's more than just the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist and how we practice it. There was more. There was deeper meanings to it. 
It included table fellowship. They sat around a table. Ancient believers could not observe the Lord's Supper in the temple, right? We read that earlier. They, were, they had to go to their homes. It was done in their homes. It was done in connection with a meal. It was a party. It was an atmosphere. The last thing that Luke tells us is that they were devoted, to me is actually the most important, is they were devoted to prayer. And the emphasis that we see is collective prayer. So in the early church, prayer was clearly a high priority, and it was an important part of their life together. It's an integral part of actually daily life. It kept them connected with the Lord, and, and it also kept them connected with the church. It was a necessary work that God had for them. And when we read it in Acts, it's not just individual prayer. It's corporate prayer. It's prayer as a community. And so in Acts, where there is much prayer, there's much activity of the Holy Spirit. And when there's much activity of the Holy Spirit, there's much prayer. We see that. And we all have spiritual needs. And God has created us with a need for him. He's placed within each of us a a need that only really he can fulfill. And this has caused these spiritual needs to be fulfilled within also the context of community. That is why we have the church. And then I'll hear, well, I, Jerry, I can read and pray at home. I don't need to gather together. Well, unfortunately, most people don't do this stuff at home. And we do have spiritual needs. Like we need to be prayed for, which you saw earlier today, which is so important for us as a church. We need to encourage one another. We need to be cared for. That can, and that can only happen in the context of a community of believers who gather together. Choosing to stay away from church is like telling God, I can do this on my own. He's created a means by which, you know, your most important needs can be met. And to ignore that is the same thing as to say to God, look at I just don't want your help. It's like being sick and refusing to go to a doctor. It's like being on empty and passing the last gas station for 100 kilometers. It's like dying of thirst by refusing to drink any water. Life is tough enough without ignoring the spiritual help that God has put all around us. We also have physical needs. Acts 2, they shared everything. Another important need is that everybody that has a church that's part of a community like that can help in the physical needs. Now, we have physical needs that are caused by sickness. And doctors and help, hospitals can help with much of that. They can't take care of everything. Sometimes there's stuff that only God can fix. And so Luke tell, tells us about this in the early church. He says there was a deep sense of awe that came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. Again, so here we have another reference that these miracles were an important aspect of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit amongst believers. Signs and wonders should still be normative wherever the gospel is being spread. Here at Seoul, we believe that God is still in the miracle business. We have heard testimonies throughout the years. James 5 says, Is any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. Notice that the criteria for being healed is that you come to the elders of the church, that you ask for prayer. It's a sense of humility that the ball is in your court. How many of us struggle with sickness, with other things that are going wrong in our lives when everything is out of control and you hear the invitation, you know, we want to pray with you. No, no, I'm just going to sit tight. I'm not going to respond. And yet we see in the scriptures, just suck it up, princess, and go forward for prayer. An aspect of our own hearts and humility has to kick in. 
Other aspects of our physical needs involve food and clothing, do they not? Luke tells us that all the believers met together in one place. They shared everything they have. That word together literally means upon the same. It was a technical term for community in church fellowship. Their willingness to share everything they had show the extent of their unity and fellowship. They were family, holding everything in common. It wasn't socialism. It wasn't communism. It was voluntary. Also, their goods were, were not evenly distributed. They were given to those who needed it the most. It's much like what we do here for our Living Word campus downtown. Take in the stuff. We'll take, just bring it. We'll make sure it gets to them. We'll share with those in need. This is the love of Christ at work in people. It is simply walking the talk. The early church was so much like family that they sold their property and possessions. They shared the money with those in need. Many sold pieces of land they owned and personal property as well. That money was distributed to those in need. Anyone as he had need, is that, that's a key statement. They didn't sell property until they, there was a need. Believers were so near to the cross and the resurrection. They were so filled with the Spirit that for a while, selflessness was swallowed up in love. It was easy to sell possessions and think of the good of all. You know, we did a, or we're in the process of purging. I know I've talked to a few other people who are doing the same thing. And you know, you look at the stuff that you've bought, and this is me speaking for my own personal life. We look at the stuff that we bought, the amount of money that we put into it, and how long have we held on to it? Of course, I have one son who's business minded and said, hey, Dad, there's a, you know, like a, a store you can turn around and you can give it to them and you can get a, you know, you, they'll sell it for you and you get your money back or something like that. Or you can turn around and give it to Goodwill and, or Living Word and let somebody else benefit from it. Now, some of us could be more shrewd and say, well, I'll take the money and use it in another way, which is great. Or others of it will just give away generously, which is great as well. But we hold on to stuff. Stuff that in the long term just really, really doesn't matter. You know, and I look at our church, I look at our community, and I look at this monstrosity of a physical building. And our church has a physical need, and each one of us is key, I believe, in answering that need. Back on April 23rd, I, I spoke and I mentioned giving, and I mentioned that we as a church were severely down in our year-to-date giving. And, and again, I also said that you know, when we built this facility, we knew and we budgeted that we'd run a deficit for three to four years, and then between the four or five-year mark, we would be out of that red zone. And the fact is that we didn't take into account that giving would drop. Now, we don't know the reason for that. Maybe people are losing their jobs. Maybe people are diverted in their giving, whatever. We just didn't take that into account. So the last few weeks, if you are on our mailing list, you'll notice that I encourage the Thanksgiving offering. And I want to give a big thanks to those who have stepped up to the challenge for it's helped us out greatly. But back in April, when I talked about what our bills were and how things were being spent, we encouraged people to not only increase their giving, but also to attempt to tithe when we call the 90-day challenge uh, and even give over and above. And again, I thank you for all those who have taken up the challenge on that. But I'll just say this very simply. Our financial trend has basically continued as we in leadership and staff all have to make serious hard choices in terms of stopping all spending and even added cutbacks in terms of running this facility. 
A lot of people, they look at Seoul and they think that we're just loaded. They don't realize that we have a $3.1 million debt. That our mortgage payments alone are over $20,000 a month. So yeah, we rent it out. Why? Because I think it's a great resource. It's one of, churches are one of the most underused pieces of property in the world. And so we turn around. Last night there was some huge event here. You still smell the curry. But, you know, we don't care who comes in. We just make it happen. Our problem, our problem is, is that we're ticking off our neighbors because sometimes the noise gets a little bit too loud. And so here we are. we got this fine line of trying to pay the bills, trying to pay off the mortgage, trying to do what we're doing. And um, we have to make hard choices. And if we're committed to the vision and the mission of this faith community, we are committed then to help out financially so that we can do more. So let me put it this way. And it's funny because a lot of people, I, 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 all my ministry, I've hated talking about money, but now I'm at the point where I honestly, I don't care anymore. Because in order for people to see and understand the vision, they need to realize that vision costs something. And it costs all of us who are part of a community something. You know, are we committed to help out financially? Why? So that we can do more. So let me put it this way. A church cannot function, hear me very carefully when I say this, because some of you are going to be so angry. A church cannot function without profit. I just want to let that sit there for a little bit, just to stir some of you. Let me put it in a better way. A church cannot function without margin. Yes, we are a non-for-profit charity. That's who we are. We, we fully abide by the government laws. What's coming in is going out. But a church will cease to exist if you have more funds going out than coming in. That's common sense, right? There's an adage that says financial stress will lead to mess. And so common, common practice says if a church operates without margin, it cannot focus on its mission. A church has to be constantly, this is the purpose of the church, not a building about you and I. It has to be constantly be planting seeds of generosity and to grow its givers. We have to be planting seeds of generosity way before the harvest. However, there can be no go out if you don't have income. You with me? I mentioned that we've had a big debt. Now, debt is not a sin. Some actually feel it is a sin, but I, I don't think it's a sin. But having so much debt that we cannot give generously as God leads might be especially dangerous. And here's four rules about debt. Maybe you like this. Stats tell us that Canadians are comfortable with debt. I would like to ask how many of you are in debt and see how many hands go up. We're very comfortable with that because no politician would be reelected if we weren't comfortable with that. You with me? Canadians are extremely, secondly, are extremely comfortable with other people's debt. Why? Oh, you're in debt. That's good. That doesn't affect me. Home Depot owns me. I just want you to know that. That stupid orange card. However, the latest trends in finances tell us this number three, that most people do not like paying off their debts. Although we may want to, we don't like to. Now here's the, de uh, the kicker. And although we may have debt, we really don't like paying off other people's debt. Right? That's Canada. Research shows that uh, people over 40 don't like debt. They want to get rid of debt, and they wonder how we ever got there in the first place. Anybody over 40 and feel that way? Right? Yeah, exactly. That's how we are. Some of us even think, like I said earlier, some of us even think debt is sin, but, and we want to get rid of it. However, people under 40, listen to this, are comfortable with debt. You think about that. 
They've grown up with it. It has been their normal. We're just in debt. Student loans, whatever, credit card, doesn't matter. We're just in debt. But people under 40 is interesting. They are passionate about life change and solving the problems this world has. So how then can we as a church community with those over 40 who want to get rid of the debt and wonder how do we get there in the first place and those who are under, go, I don't know about debt, but I want to change the world. How do we merge the two to fulfill the mission of the church? So as a pastor, raising funds for debt is difficult. When I talk to people about debt reduction, it comes across like this. And this, like I play these things out in my head. It keeps me awake at night. It's me, like me saying, please sacrifice for paying off your own debt for paying off the church's debt. Listen, that's very hard to communicate. But you've got to think about it this way. Over $20,000 a month goes just to pay off our mortgage. Now, if we had 20000 and we're paying it. Don't get me wrong. We haven't missed any mortgage payments or anything else. We're just being very careful with what we're doing. I touched my screen. I'm almost done. I touched my screen. There we go. If we had $20,000 a month freed up for ministry... What could we do with that? $20,000 a month is a, an astronomical amount of money that we could advance the vision and the mission of this church. What could we do with that? If you talk to the staff, if you talk to the leadership, would we have enough funds then to build and finish our daycare, which is so needed in the city, but we don't even have the funds to put up four-foot walls and toilets? We can't. Well, there's government grants. Yeah, you know how government grants work? You put in all the money, you get a portion back. We don't even have that seed money to put in there yet. You think about it. We have a problem with our kids in youth ministry. It's growing. It's nuts. If you are connected anyway on Friday night, this was, this was Nutsville, this place. The amount of kids that was running through the mix, young life and, and wildlife, is crazy. That's a great problem. We're literally outgrowing our facility. Maybe $20,000 a month we could take and begin to build a new next generation addition, complete with an industrial kitchen and a recording studio or whatever else we need for the next generation. One wish list I received from a staff member is they wanted to buy, listen to this, a 15 by 30 foot carpet or two area rugs for the nursery. Or can we have blinds for the windows in the nursery? Oh, what's this blinds, Jerry? Just go get blinds. Do you know how much blinds cost? We can show you an estimate. If we had $20,000 freed up, how many more mission organizations can we give to? The amount of people that I sit down and hear their story, and I get, the latest one is just an invite to go to India. And, and, and come, come preach, come teach, come see what we're doing, come and invest, come and partner. And I can't even say yes. And so when it comes right down to it, it's open to the imagination of God and the moving of the Holy Spirit. The biggest mistake churches make today is preaching on giving and not preaching on money. That's, that's really, and I'm at guilt for that. We talk about giving and, and money, but it's, it's, this is not just about another fundraiser. It's really about when we talk about our finances and how we as the church are in it together, it's about our spiritual journey. 
Your monthly tithe, your monthly giving is about the ownership of your faith. That's between you and God. God gives you a certain amount of money. You give him a certain amount back. That's a lordship issue in your life. I can't do anything about that. But the church at large needs financial margin. A city without walls cannot prosper. If a church is living without financial margin, it's like a city without walls. We're we're prone to be overrun. And what happens, and here's the negative part of what can happen. When the debt is high, vision becomes low. In other words, debt tells us no. God tells us to go. Debt tells us no. Pastor, can we do this ministry? Debt tells us no. Pastor, can we hire somebody? Debt tells us no. Pastor, can we launch a new campus? Debt tells us no. And when that happens, the community begins to lose vision. But as debt comes down, the vision and the joy goes up. And I believe that we can pay off our debt, and I believe that we can not only pay off our debt and do ministry, but both at the same time. And really what that requires is a maximum participation from everybody. We all have to understand that, that giving is a spiritual journey. It's not just a fundraiser. It's a spiritual journey that we as Christians are on. It's about the ownership of our, the future of the church. You're not giving to a building. You are giving to a vision fund. You with me? Margin gives us space. It gives us the breathing room. And we cannot grow closer to Jesus without growing in generosity. Are you being more generous in your own life? And when you give, you're helping raise up that next generation. That's where our focus is going. That's where our thoughts are. When you give, you're doing that. If I'm going to write a check to somebody, I want to write a check where the vision is flowing. Have you seen what's happening in our next generation department? The church should be the best funded the best led and most effective organization in town. Why? Because we all have a part to play. And if you're currently giving and and have given over and above, I just say thank you. Thank you. If you haven't given anything or you're not regular in your giving, then I'm asking you simply step it up and assist in the building some margin in what we're doing here so that we can continue to develop effective ministry. Because we all have physical needs. And finally, the church is important because we all have social needs. Just as important as physical and and spiritual, our needs to be accepted, our need to be loved. Luke says that the early church worshipped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the supper. They shared their meals with great joy, with great generosity. And the concept of worshipping together means to associate closely, continuously with, so to stay close to people. In our culture, we try to keep people away. And really what church is supposed to be about is about family. First Corinthians says, if one part suffer, all parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all parts are glad. All, all of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. And so when one hurts, we all hurt. When one is sick, we're all sick. When one lacks, we all lack. The church is about sharing. It's about sharing with those in need, sharing with those who don't know where to turn, sharing with those who need a hand up. The church is about caring, caring for one another when we're down, caring for one another when we're sick, caring for one another when we've lost hope and we can't even pray. We come up behind and hold your arms up, but it's hard for us to care when we're not together. 
And I believe God is sad at the sight of so many of us, so many believers. Do we just try to work things out for ourselves? Why? Well, I don't trust the church, and I don't trust people. And I'm not even sure I trust God, but I'm going to try to do it myself. And yet he longs to help us, and we won't let him. And then he sends his ambassadors, who are other believers, to come alongside to lift us up, and we push them away. You can't tell me that breaks his heart. Because God created us. He created us for fellowship with him and with one another. So, you know, I, again, I hear it. I can, I can worship God at home myself. Really? Just go and read Revelation 5 for a bit, and you'll quickly see that the worship of God is done in community. Furthermore, the ancient church didn't just worship together. You know, they, they ate together. They shared their meals. There was great joy. There was generosity. It was just as important for us to meet together outside of the worship gathering as it is for us to meet together in worship. That's why we have these life groups. That's why you meet other people and you have them in your home. Notice that they enjoyed each other's company with great joy. They came from the heart because people were not trying to impress everyone. They had developed an attitude toward each other that enabled them to truly enjoy each other. My life group came back last week. I was really surprised. Last night they actually came back because one day I actually fell asleep on the floor while life group was on. They said I was snoring. I don't believe them. I was in meditation. But they come back again and again and again. And it's not a gathering that happens here, but it's a discussion of the scriptures and what do the scriptures mean and what is the application and what's people caring? What do we pray for? Who's holding on to what? How can we guide? How can we walk with this is really what it's all about. And look what happens when we do these things. Luke says, all the while praising God, enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who are being saved. That's the nine easy words. Would you like to go to church with me? When God's people, when we come together, we enjoy fellowship. We enjoy praising God. There's a natural result that happens. True fellowship focuses on God and helps people to remember the good things he has done, which in turn causes praise. Such fresh and powerful community life would win the admiration of people outside the church and they would come in. Others saw their unity. Others saw their devotion to God, their daily worship in their temple, their love for one another. And people would naturally want to be a part of something that's so enriching, life-changing, and life-giving. And that's what this church is about. Just as we need God, we need each other. We were created with a need for human contact. We're created for, with a natural dependency for one another. Some of us, we stick too much. We're like, we're like leeches, right? These are EGR people, extra grace required. But they're still part of the community. This is how we've got to bring them in. Others are going, oh, I'm okay. No, you're not okay. You need a hug. Now, not me, but other people. Being with others is good for us. It helps us spiritually. It helps us psychologically. It actually helps us physically because we all need a place where we feel accepted. The ancient church had a singleness of heart, which was beautiful. They had one thing in mind, and that was the progress of their church. They had the singleness of heart, and when in that singleness of heart, it brought a unity which resulted in one mind and one accord, what the scriptures tell us. And they came in to worship, they came to praise, they came to serve, and they came to give. Their song services must have been exciting and stimulating. It must have been vibrant. 
They were singing, they were making melody in their hearts to God. They, they were serving the Lord with gladness. They were doing what it takes. No wonder the church was growing. No wonder the church was advancing. No wonder souls were being saved. It just wasn't Peter or John fired up. Everybody was actively involved in their church. And when we have a singleness of heart, the church then begins to grow. It begins to progress. It begins to move forward. We will actively see the results. So the question is, what is Jesus calling you this morning to do in regards to the mission of soul sanctuary? Maybe you're not sure about all this Jesus stuff. Maybe I said the word money and you're choked. Maybe you're feeling a tugging in your heart. And maybe it's just Jesus actually calling you by name to follow him. Like I said earlier, we're all called to repent. Many of us in this room have answered the call. Maybe he's calling you. Maybe you don't know Jesus and you've been fighting his call. Maybe you need to turn. Maybe you need to turn and change your life and make Jesus the Lord of your life. Would you bow with your heads with me this morning? If you're here and you're going, I, 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 need, I need Jesus. Man, I need this church thing that you're talking about. I need to make a commitment. If that's due, you, let me just pray with you this morning. And, and if you're actually serious, I'd invite you to actually take that welcome card and fill it out and drop it off at the, you can throw it in the joy basket or drop it off at the welcome desk on your way out. And we'll contact you. We'll follow up with you. We want to walk with you. That's part of what being a follower of Jesus is. But maybe just let me, if that's you this morning, just let me pray for you. And maybe make this prayer your prayer. Lord, I just recognize you as my Savior. And Jesus, I'm sorry for the things in my life that have displeased you. Thank you for coming to earth to die in my place. And please take away my sin right now. I believe in you and I receive you into my life. Help me to rely on you in the days to come and help me to follow you so that I can grow to become like you. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer for the first time, tell us before you leave. Come to the front. Come tell me. We can meet up for coffee. That's what we do. Come to the office. We'll pick a time, place, make it work. Or just fill out a form, drop it off, and we'll follow for you. For the rest of us, I want to invite everybody to stand. I've written this closing prayer for me. But if you want to make it your prayer at the end of this gathering, just say amen. So awaken me, Lord, to your light. Open my eyes to your presence. And awaken me, Lord, to your love. Open my heart to your indwelling. Awaken me, Lord, to your life. Open my mind to your abiding. And awaken me, Lord, to your purpose. And open my will to your guiding. Amen. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing, one receiving a blessing did likewise. So if you want a blessing before you go, here it is. 
And next week we will continue on this passage, which will be a whole lot of fun. So may God send you out from this place of worship and time of celebration, because that's truly what it is. And as he sends you out, may you live lives of hope. May you be nurturers of the vision of wholeness and serve as healers. Yes, you serve as healers in this wounded world on behalf of Jesus. And may he grant you wisdom. May he grant you courage. And may he grant you his peace. And may you learn to dance with him this week. Amen. And we'll see you next week or on first Wednesday at 7.07 up in the youth center. Be blessed, everybody.